Welcome back to another Two Guys, One Topic expert interview. Liam, this week we did the International Space Station and we needed to find ourselves a topic expert, didn't we? Yes, we did. Now, uh, we've said this a few times, this might be the pinnacle of experts as far as the International Space Station goes. Right, we have managed to interview possibly the most famous astronaut since Neil Armstrong, haven't we? This guy was the first Canadian commander of the International Space Station. He is a heavily decorated astronaut, engineer and pilot, and he actually helped design and construct the International Space Station itself. This is our interview with the unbelievably interesting commander, Chris Hadfield. Chris, thank you so much for joining the Two Guys One Topic podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure. Glad to be glad to be talking to you both. Thank you so much. As our listeners will know, this week our topic was the International Space Station, and we have found who we believe is the absolute best expert for us to be talking with today. And Chris, just so you know, what we normally do is we ask our topic experts. How did they even get into the line of work which you were in? And how was it that you became an astronaut in the first place? There are nowadays a few different types of astronauts. There are professional astronauts and there are tourist astronauts. Um, but when, when I first decided to try and turn myself into an astronaut, there was only one type. And that was to be an astronaut working for one of the big space agencies like NASA or the Russian Space Agency. And so that's what I set my sights on. And uh, I actually decided to turn myself into an astronaut when I was nine years old, okay. uh, just about to turn 10, watching the first people walk on the moon. So the real question, uh, Ollie, was, you know, how? How do you turn yourself into an astronaut? And so I looked at the astronauts that were there at the time, and they all had advanced technical university degrees. So I thought, okay, I'm going to have to do that. I need an advanced technical university degree. Um, they were all in good physical shape uh, because they had to be able to function for a lot of years and a long way from home. So I thought, okay, I'll keep my body in good shape. Okay. And uh, they were all pilots. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll become a pilot. And they were test pilots. And in order to become a test pilot, you sort of have to be a military pilot. And so I thought, okay, fine, I'll join the Royal Canadian Air Force. So, so it just sort of gave me a recipe to okay. choose items from. And that's what I did. I kept my body in shape. I went to four different universities. I joined the Royal Canadian Air Force. I became a pilot. And then I served as a fighter, a combat fighter pilot. And then I went to test pilot school, and then I served as a test pilot uh, as a Canadian with the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy. And then after all of those things, Canada had an astronaut selection, and I got selected to be uh, one of Canada's astronauts and to eventually help build and then to go command the International Space Station. Fantastic. What a great journey. So from nine years old, you set your sights on it and you made it become a reality. That's fantastic to hear. Yeah, I mean, the reality of your life is to a very large degree, uh, all of the small decisions that you made. It's kind of the, the, not what you meant to do or what you told people you were going to do, but it's really all, uh, what did you choose to do next? And what did you do right after that? And what did you do after that? And that's what 
determines almost the entire path of your life, what you chose to do next. And so I just used that lure of maybe uh, what the Apollo astronauts had done, of being an astronaut. I used that as a constant uh, guiding light in choosing what I was going to do next. And, and there was never any straight line or any guarantee, <laughs> but I thought I'm, I'm going to do something. Why, yes. why don't I do that? You know, yes. that sounds like a fascinating career. <laughs> and, uh, and ended up spending half a year in space and, uh, and, and uh, flying three different rocket ships and um, building two different space stations and then, and then uh, commanding uh, a spaceship. So yeah, it's, it's amazing where that childhood dream and a lifetime of small choices can take you. Incredible. So during our episode, talking about the International Space Station, in its most simplest form, Liam and I, we, we were summarizing to say that the International Space Station is essentially a state-of-the-art, world-class laboratory that is orbiting Earth. I mean, how would you describe it in your own words? Yeah, the purpose of the space station is to be a laboratory uh, that has a set of conditions that no other laboratory has. Um, and the main difference is it's essentially weightless on board. It only has the tiny little vibrations of the hull and then the very gentle tug of war in between the Earth and the moon and the sun and Jupiter and Saturn. Um, so there, there's tiny amounts of, of gravity, but virtually nothing. So that's one big difference for that laboratory. The other is that you're in the empty vacuum of space, a perfect vacuum. So, or almost perfect. So, I mean, there's the occasional particle goes by. So, uh, so you can do experiments there that you can't do on earth. And you have a perfectly unimpeded view of the universe, not, nothing in the way, and of the earth itself, where you go around the world every 16 days. So it's an amazing laboratory where, where you can see the entire world, where you can do experiments that don't have gravity, where you can take advantage of the empty vacuum of space, and where you can see the eternity of the universe itself uh, with nothing blocking your view. And, and, and that laboratory has been up there for over 20 years and it is a thriving, humming, uh, busy place of activity. Wow. Yeah, unbelievable learning about the space station. Yeah. Um, the, the experiments that, that you do up there, we, we, you know, we'd read that, that they're essentially testing the effects of this zero gravity on humans. But do you do experiments like in the traditional sort of science way, you know, like with test tubes and sort of petri dishes and that sort of thing? Are those the sorts of experiments that happen? We typically, uh, Liam, run about 200 experiments simultaneously on the space. Oh, wow. um, and so some of the ones you've read about may have to do with the human body. And, and it is interesting, all the changes that happen to the human body when you take away gravity. Your balance system changes, your, your blood pressure regulation, your uh, the load in your body. You don't have to fight gravity. You start to get osteoporosis. You get arteriosclerosis. You get hardening of the arteries. There's a lot of parallels to rapid onset aging. Uh, so it's quite an interesting place to, to study the human body. We even have people who get changes of vision and, and other effects. Uh, but it's way more than that. Um, we use the space station to study fundamental physics, like uh, without gravity, heat doesn't rise because oh, so, wow. the light stuff doesn't float anywhere to the top. It just sits there. Yes. So uh, we study flame and, and we've done a lot of different flame experiments up there and extinguishing experiments. And then we study liquids because the heavy stuff doesn't fall to the bottom. So you can do fundamental fluid physics and, and droplet behaviors up there. 
Um, we are above the atmosphere, so it's a tremendous observatory of the world. We have had multiple types of uh, telescopes or uh, sensors on the outside to look at the universe. One of them is the alpha magnetic spectrometer, which is collecting particles that are smaller than atoms, subatomic particles, uh, to try and understand what the universe is made of. I I'm sure you two gentlemen know, but we only know what 6% of the universe is made of. We can't account for 94% yes. of, of what's out there. And so we're by looking at the subatomic particles, the bosons and the muons and the leptons, um, we're hoping by understanding their natural occurrence to try and figure out what the universe is made of. And then, of course, uh, going around the world 16 times a day for decades gives you an un unprecedented chance to understand Mother Earth itself yeah. and to see the day-to-day -day changes and the year-to-year -year and then the decade-to-decade -decade changes. So it is a huge, thriving laboratory of, of multi-spectral experiments. Fantastic. And could you talk us through just the day-to-day -day life that you would, you would be as being an astronaut on the ISS? And what that well, first off, you have to choose when morning is because you're going, you know, <laughs> you're going around the world 16 times a day. So, <laughs> so which time zone are you going to choose? And the preponderance of our workforces on Earth are either in Houston at the Johnson Space Center or in Moscow at the Center for Paliotomy, which is which just means uh, Center for Control of Missions, which is just outside of Moscow. So you've got a big workforce in Moscow and one in Houston. And so we thought we'd sort of split the difference. And so we actually chose uh, England time, Greenwich time, okay. as the time zone of the space station. So we, uh, we wake up same time the Queen wakes up every morning. And in my case, it was an alarm on my wristwatch. And then... Um, and there are typically six people on board at the time and uh, two toilets. So we take turns and get cleaned up and, and make ourselves a quick breakfast. And then we brief with mission control. And there's a mission control in Houston and one in Moscow and one in Montreal and one in Munich and one in Tokyo. So we quickly check in with all of those to find out which experiments and any updates and what's going on. And, and we read the daily flight plan. And then we launch individually, each of us, into all the experiments of the day. And, uh, and then you have two hours each day where you need to exercise your body. Otherwise, your bones and your muscles waste away. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have various pieces of exercise equipment. And somewhere along the way, you grab a quick lunch. Uh, and then you work till about uh, five o'clock in, in London time in the afternoon. And then... Um, and then you have a little bit of time to uh, gather dinner. And as commander, I would try and have dinner together once or twice a week if we could, just to have some sort of social event. But people are busy. And then in the evening, you uh, you prepare for the next day. There's a lot of study uh, and reading to get ready for all of the experiments or the things that you're going to be repairing for the next day. And then maybe when it's bedtime, uh, there'll be a little bit of free time to maybe do something that, that you're curious about. And I would generally steal an hour of, of planned sleep time to do things that were personal, like take pictures of the world or okay. uh, call my family or uh, write music or, uh, you know, communicate with social media or things like that. And, and then you repeat and you do that seven days a week for six months. Okay. And you... That's immense. Yeah, that, that sounds really good. We've <laughs> seen some videos of you, Chris, just in, in preparing to talk with you with your guitar up in space as well which yeah hopefully 
yeah, just something that can make it feel a little bit more normal for you, I suppose, from being away from family and what have you. But there's there's a decent internet connection. You can get to speak to people and communicate quite well. Is that right? No, it's terrible. It's very wow. slow. It's uh, the same sort of internet connection we had about 25 years ago on Earth. Oh, okay. oh wow. Well, just because you're, you're going eight kilometers a second, you know, 17 and a half thousand miles an hour. And so uh, in order to get internet, it has to be linked through long chains of, of satellite communications and antennas in various places. And it's intermittent. Um, but occasionally you get a reasonable length where you can, might actually be able to set up a video conference like a Skype, something like that. But it's slow and intermittent, but it's better than it's ever been. So it's all right. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things, you know, talking about the day-to-day life, I guess this isn't every day, but we'd be remiss not to mention spacewalking going out and doing that i think did you do that twice did you do two spacewalks i have i've done two spacewalks yes and um yeah i i mean there's another whole episode just talking about this could you just talk us through i mean how do you prepare for it how did it feel what was it like we only go outside when we absolutely have to you know we have uh, a big a couple big robot arms outside that can move a lot of things around but occasionally you need human dexterity or human creativity a problem solving ability to go out and try and do something finicky, you know, and um, but the risk, the human risk of death is much higher going out on a spacewalk than it is staying inside. So we don't just, you know, do it recreationally or something. <laughs> um, but when we've determined that we need to, then uh, we work, uh, you know, you make up a full choreographed plan and like, you know, an assault on Mount Everest or something. And, uh, and then, and then each person that's going to do a spacewalk has to have uh, trained uh, pretty extensively. For my first spacewalk, I spent about 400 hours underwater uh, in, a, in a spacewalking simulator. 400 hours, you know, 24 hours a day. Think, think how much time that is. And, uh, and you're underwater for four hours at a time or six hours at a time. And, uh, and it's not like you're just taking a course or something. You're inventing it. You know, you have to, I, I had to go with the NASA team to the model makers who made the full-scale mock-ups of the parts of the space station that we were going to be training on so that the reality of those mock-ups will be good enough that it would then allow us to develop all of the techniques and the things we were going to do in order to make sure that our actual spacewalk was going to be successful. Yeah. For my, my two spacewalks, I trained for about four years. Um, and... Wow. And the suit itself is very complicated. It, it's not really a space suit. It's a, it's a one-person spaceship, you know, because okay. all of your life support equipment is in that suit. And they malfunction occasionally. A very recent one, uh, they had uh, the water separating and humidification system was failing, and it was starting to fill the helmet up with water, you know, and or you can lose communication. While I was outside on my first spacewalk, I was blinded by contamination in the suit. Both my eyes were struck blind for about a half hour. You know, things go wrong. So you need to, um, uh, there's, there's a lot of training goes into it and preparation uh, so that you're not only uh, aware and, and have the skills, but also you have the depth of understanding of what's gonna happen. But the experience itself is, is probably the most magnificent experience of my entire life to, to, to physically grab on to the hatch with both hands and pull yourself out into the universe <laughs> where you are now 
surrounded by the the three-dimensionality of eternity and the earth is this planet separate from you turning enormous and silent near you but you are mentally and physically separate from it you no longer feel like you're from earth it's just a planet like any other planet that you might see and and so and, and it's beautiful and at one point while i was outside spacewalking we went through the earth's aurora so I, I got to spacewalk at night through the northern light, or actually the southern lights, and have them ripple past me and pour past the ship in all of their colors. And it, it's I was outside for about 15 hours, one spacewalk of eight hours and one of seven. So that's 10 times around the world while outside on a spacewalk. It's it's magnificent. I hope the both of you get a chance to do it sometime. Oh, wow. Get the hairs on the back of my neck, Chris, <laughs> standing up, just hearing you describe it in that way. It sounds absolutely incredible. Were, were you able to appreciate it when you were first stepping out? Was there was there some like fear that overtook you? Or you just thought, right, this is just part of my job. I've done the training. And is it something retrospective? You then look back and you think, wow, I, I really did enjoy that. You know, how, how do the emotions then feel as you... Do well, first, I need, I need to correct you, Ollie. You said stepping out. And, and of course, uh, there's no step. <laughs> For six months, you don't take one step. Um, but you pull yourself out. And, uh, and it's quite complex because the hatches, for good engineering reasons, are round. But the spacesuit, for other engineering reasons, has a big square backpack on it. So you're a square astronaut with a round hole that you're trying to get out of, uh, which, which and it's, and you're, you're attached by... Um, tethers, safety tethers, and it's very easy to get all snagged and tangled up. So, so it's quite um, uh, the stakes are very high, um, but it, it it is beautiful and and fun and magnificent. And this wasn't the first thing I've done in my life. You know, I've done I've been lucky enough to be sort of on the pointy end of many other things. And way back when I was an F eighteen pilot, uh, you know, which is one of the most uh, capable flying machines that we've ever built, I recognize that sometime in my life, there wasn't going to be uh, an F-18 sitting there waiting for me, all fueled up and some young airman uh, or airwoman saluting me and, you know, giving, uh, handing me the keys essentially to go, please go empty this beast of gas, you know? And, and so I tried to treasure every single one of those flights, even though I had, you know, thousands and thousands of hours of flying. Yeah. Because I recognize what a privilege. It's a huge responsibility. And, you know, I flew armed airplanes, uh, intercepting armed Soviet airplanes uh, during the Cold War. But at the same time, a tremendous privilege. And with privilege comes responsibility. And and the same thing on a spacewalk. I resolved that every every brain cell that I had in order to try and soak up what was happening, I was going to try and divert them to do that and, and to pay attention and not, not miss the experience being wrapped up in the minutiae of the details. And, and I'm glad I did. There were multiple moments in there where I could actually stop and, uh, and smell the roses of the universe. <laughs> I, I'm a teacher. And um, as soon as I said I was going to talk to you, I got so many questions to ask you, you know, they're just throwing questions at me, but there's the same themed questions that I, I'm sure you get asked all the time, but I promised the kids I would ask you. So can I just quick fire some answers? Just, you just answer them as quickly as you can. Just, I got five real fast ones that I got asked. So hopefully you can just fire through these. Number one, how do you sleep? You float weightless in a sleeping bag that's tied to the wall with a, with one string. <laughs> um, is the food 
edible or something that you eventually get used to? Is it something that you now miss? It's like military rations or the type of food you would take on a camping trip in your backpack. So it's okay. okay. It's not fancy, but it's fine. And I came back completely healthy and it's probably healthier for you than the, t- the foods you're going to choose on earth. So it's fine. But, but I wouldn't go to space for the food. <laughs> um, does space have a smell? Space is completely empty and smell is small particles going into your olfactory receptors in your nose. Space has no smell. But when you come in from a spacewalk, uh, because the, the interior walls of the airlock, of the chamber that you're in, they're made of metal and plastic. And because they've been exposed to the vacuum of space, it has sort of pulled out some of the, the, the fine uh, molecules that would normally stay trapped within the metal. And so there is sort of a, a lingering smell when you repressurize the airlock. And it smells a little bit like um, when a gun has been fired uh, okay. or, or maybe when a barbecue has been shut down, where the metal has been really hot. And so it releases this sort of cordite smell or, or this, this lingering metallic smell. But I, it's not the smell of space. It's the smell of your spaceship uh, exposed to space. Wow. Um, and two that I can actually put together here. How do you go to the toilet? And do you end up drinking your own pee? Like, is it recycled into water? Well, uh, on Earth, you, I mean, if you're in Wokingham, uh, you drink your own pee also. You just don't think about it. Uh, because yeah, when, you flush, when you flush the toilet, it doesn't magically disappear. It goes into uh, a plumbing system and then to a sewage treatment system. And then the water is re-released into the environment again. Yeah. And then eventually it gets drunk, you know, and, and all the water you have ever drunk in your life used to be dinosaur pee. I mean, they were here for millions of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine how much an apatosaurus peed every day, you know, so it's just, yeah. So, so the real, you have everybody on earth constantly drinks recycled urine, but, but it, it's, so long as your recycler is good, doesn't matter. Water, once you've taken the impurities, water's just water. So, so long as you have a good uh, filtering system, then, then it doesn't matter. And that's what we have on the space station. We recycle, and not just our urine, but we recycle the humidity out of the air. Um, you know, you get sweaty when you exercise and stuff. And, and sometimes we use water for other purposes, and then we have some uh, non-potable water. And we recycle that. We recycle about 92% of the liquids on the space station, oh, wow. back to drinking water again, which is good. Otherwise, every ship would constantly just to be full of water coming up. Um, and then the way the toilet works on Earth, uh, toilets work pretty much uh, assuming there's always going to be gravity so that everything that comes out of your body is pulled away from your body safely and healthily, because obviously you can't touch it, um, down into the toilet. Uh, So we needed something that would serve that same purpose without gravity. And so we use airflow. And so uh, you pee into a tube and it uh, and, and that collects into a liquid system and there's air pulled into that tube so it, it doesn't spray around. And and then the solid waste, uh, you're on a toilet and, and it's pulled down into a collector uh, by airflow. So it's a little bit windy sitting on the toilet there, but it works fine. And, um, and then the solid waste, we don't have a healthy, good way to recycle it yet. So we just store it as part of our waste, all of our trash. 
And, um, and then every so often, one of our robotic resupply ships is completely full as like a tip or a, a dumpster or whatever. And um, once it's completely full, then we undock it and it falls down and, and burns up in mm-hmm. the atmosphere. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so, so the next time you see a shooting star going across. <laughs> we, Liam and I were talking about how some of the, the, well, the experiments and the technology that is used on the, the ISS then, and Liam used the bad pun, filters back down into, into earth. Um, so just going back to some of the experiments, do you get to pick your experiments that you work on? Or is that just part of an overall larger project where working with the agencies, they then say, these are the types of things we'd like you to look into? The, the space station is built by 15 countries and maintained by 15, and they all have their entire science programs. And, and then there's an enormous long peer-reviewed process by which experiments are allowed to be up on the space station. They have to, you know, good quality and safe and all the rest of it. Uh, and, and then our job is to be the, uh, the operator of those experiments. Some of them are simple to operate. Some of them require a lot of human interaction and training. The ones that might be um, invasive to our own life, if we're doing human health experiments, those ones we get to choose or say no to. Uh, you know, like uh, if say they want to take uh, they want to take a muscle sample. You know, okay. where you actually put a little drill into your leg and, and take a, a sample of your own muscle. Obviously, they they can't just tell you to do that. So you have to volunteer to do the uh, the human invasive ones. But the other ones, no, that you're just. I mean, you aren't there for yourself. Every person there is uh, is a public servant of some sort. Um, at least all the professional astronauts um, doing things on behalf of everybody else. So no, so that. Uh, uh, you don't, you know, it's it's a lifetime of service, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 in fact, it's a service that kills people. I've had lots of my friends die, uh, either in astronaut training or flying spaceships, and uh, and so it's not to be taken lightly. Wow, wow. Um, we, we'd read that there have been some civilians on the ISS, or or you almost, know, sort of people that have, have is that is that right? Almost everybody on the space station is a civilian. My last crew was all civilian. Well, so, you know, like people pay their way, you know, you, know, you can buy a ticket to the, uh, the ISS. Is that something that, that can happen? A space tourist almost. Yeah, that, that's that's yeah I, th- I think that's not what civilian means, right? Civilian means not military. Sorry. Yeah, right. sorry. I, I was wrong then. Yeah. So um, what you mean, though, is a paying passenger? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Right now, uh, nations can provide people as paying passengers like Malaysia did or some other countries have where they have a national astronaut selection and they choose someone and then that person trains. But there's an exchange of funds between governments or maybe large companies. Uh, The the very first Brit in space, Helen Sharman, was sort of on an international agreement flight like that. She didn't pay for it, but somebody did. And... um, so there is that early category, but now the cost of launch has dropped so much that it's actually getting to the point where, at least for a wealthy person, you can, you can buy a ticket. And, uh, and there have been several people that have been wealthy enough to do that. Um, and, and I don't begrudge them at all. If you've worked your entire life and been financially successful and you now have a chance to fly in space, then 
you know, uh, and it's it's a ticket you can buy, then then you know that's and if we've decided collectively that by our regulations that that's okay, then all right, that's interesting. Um, then there's a, a flight going up to the space station in early April of 2022, um, and it's uh, a professional astronaut named Mike Lopez Alegria. But the other three people on board have all paid to be there, and they're wow. going to fly on a SpaceX uh, rocket. And they're going to go up and dock with the International Space Station and stay on the space station for a little over a week. Each of them is bringing up a whole suite of experiments um, that are uh, medical and, and, you know, that they have worked with all different scientific organizations. And they'll be doing them the whole time up there. And then they're going to come back and Mike's going to fly them home and land them in the water. So so that's that's kind of new. Um, and uh, that as the cost of launch drops, that's only become going to become more common. Um, if you can get the cost down to uh, 10 pounds to go to space, then a lot of people would go. Mm, yeah. uh, right now, it's sort of like early aviation where only uh, people who have earned a lot of money could go. But the price has dropped drastically just in the last few years, and it's continuing to plummet. So it's sort of like aviation in its early days. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how we decide to regulate it and, and what the balance will be that, that makes some um, business sense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, just just reading lately that there might well be a, a space hotel going up in a few years' time. I think there's going to be gravity somehow attached to that one, but um, or, yeah, you can't gravity. you can't attach gravity. <laughs> we don't we don't know what we don't know what causes gravity, and we can't manipulate it. So um, the only way to simulate gravity would be to spin the ship, but that the mechanical complexity of that is enormous. So. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, and the whole point of going really is is weightlessness. So it's kind of, kind of pointless yes. if you go all that way and then you have gravity. You may as well have just stayed home. I think. Yes. Yeah. Apart from the views, I suppose that that you were saying about earlier. Just to finally, then I guess being an astronaut must be you know one of everybody's dreams. Just. Have you got any tips out there for our listeners? You know, I know my boy would love to be an astronaut. Just just any tips for becoming an astronaut. Sure. Number one is uh, decide in your heart of hearts what it is that excites you in life. Okay. Um, and one way to do that is if you go into a bookshop or a library, what section do you always find yourself gravitating towards? You know, what type of books, what ideas, what what things in a bookshop you know, what areas do you always want to go read more about? Because that's sort of a little favor to yourself of identifying where your heart lies. And once you've de decided, hey, these three or four things always interest me, then try and find a profession in those areas that that you might be able to do. And there's normally quite a, a wide variety of jobs that exist in that area that's exciting to you. And when I was a kid, it was flying in space. So, so that's how I initially started was choosing what was in my heart. Mm -hmm. And then if I decided to be an astronaut, number one, uh, by definition, you're going to be a long way from home. So you need a healthy body. And a lot of the health of your body is a deliberate choice. And, and so think about what you eat. You get to choose everything you put in your mouth every single time. So, yeah. so think about what you eat and, and do a little bit of exercise every day, go for a walk and take the stairs and carry the bag and, you know, just do stuff to keep a little bit healthy. It doesn't take a lot. So number one, healthy body. Number two, uh, flying spaceships is complicated and you're going to have to have a deep technical understanding of how things work. So that means you're going to have to learn and study uh, and be deeply curious and, have a desire to learn new things your whole life. 
So, uh, so be a very curious person, but not just curious. It's, you know, a three-year-old can ask why, but uh, don't give up until you found out the answer and made the answer part of who you are. So plan on being a, a, a complex technical student your whole life. And then the third important piece after you've taken care of your body and your mind is uh, learn how to make decisions and stick with them. A lot of people say, oh, that's above my pay grade or, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't I'll, I'll let somebody else decide that. Or the more typical thing, they'll blame someone else for things. You know, yeah. it's so easy just to blame whatever the, the town council or the bus driver or the parents or the, the whatever your current elected official is or, or whatever. Blame is easy. But all that really is, is absolving yourself of the necessity to make decisions and stick with them. And uh, and it's a really useful skill to have. And, and so I, I talk to people saying, hey, which is, you know, it's it's almost the start of another month this month resolve that I'm going to do something different every single day. I'm going to do, I don't know, 50 push-ups a day or read five words of Japanese every single day, or uh, I'm going to eat 15 Big Macs every single day, whatever it is that you're going to do different by the last day of that month, you will be a different person yeah. and, and it's measurable and visible. And so it's really good reinforcement to yourself that you can change who you are by making a decision and sticking with it. And, and that that's a perishable skill and it's a good one to have. And if you have those three things, if you've got a lifelong patterns that give you a healthy body, if you're a curious and learned person, and if you know how to make decisions and stick with them, then you're well on your way to, uh, to doing a spacewalk. Incredible. They, wow. they sounds like, sound like very wise words. Um, certainly indeed. Chris, the, the final thing we'd just like to touch on with you, that now you're you're back on Earth, um, you've actually been writing some books yourself, haven't you? And you've got um, a new book that's been out, just coming out now called The Apollo Murders. Yes. Uh, if you had flown in space, uh, Liam and, and Ollie, you know, one of the big questions you might ask yourself is what, what I'm going to do with this experience? Do I just keep it to myself? Do I just tell my family? What do I do? And I, I think it would be very selfish to just keep it to myself. It would squander it, especially since I was there on behalf of the Canadian Space Agency. And, and so I have done my best to share it. I write music about it. I do uh, performances and shows all around the world. I've done one-man shows across the UK and other countries. Um, I've done television series. I did one on the BBC and I did one with National Geographic. Um, and I teach at university and uh, I give lectures to businesses and organizations, but I also, as you say, write books. And I've written four and I'm writing my fifth. And my most recent book, the fourth book is a thriller fiction book called The Apollo Murders. And it's it was a, a bestseller in the UK, a bestseller in a lot of countries actually. And it's just actually a UK production firm is now just starting to make it into a, a television series. So oh, wow. Oh, wow. it's going to take a bunch more work, but with a little luck, the Apollo Murders will be an eight part series on I don't know Apple TV or something like that. So so that's kind of fun and exciting. But yeah, the Apollo Murders uh, is, is a thriller fiction book. Uh, alternative history and uh, set in 1973. And for me, it, it's obviously a, a fun new personal challenge to see if I could write uh, good fiction, but it's also one more way 
to try and share the incredible experience and luck um, and privilege that I've had to fly in space multiple times. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll, we'll make sure to, to check that out. Chris, we know you're, you're a very, very busy man. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and just share some of your personal experience of being on the ISS. Um, I'm sure our listeners will, will love it. Thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. And no matter where you're listening to this from, uh, just go online and put in space station sightings and your, your town or your city, and it'll tell you when to look up at dusk or dawn and watch the space station go over. And um, at the time that we're recording this, every evening, there are great passes over the UK, actually. Uh, and it's the brightest thing in the sky after the sun and then the moon space station. And it is a very visible, elegant reminder of what we could all do together when we do things right. So I, I think yeah. it's an amazing accomplishment for a lot of reasons, technical as well as sociopolitical. And, uh, and it's sometimes nice to remind ourselves of that. A, a pleasure to talk Thank to you. both of you. Thank, Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Okay. Be well, guys. Bye-bye. Liam, how fascinating was it to talk with Chris? Uh, I spent loads of that just like sort of smiling and just like I could listen to him talk all day just the way he talks is amazing but yeah just learning all of that stuff about the ISS is is I, I don't know I think I've got more questions than I had when we started <laughs> certainly Chris describing the spacewalk gave me oh yeah goosebumps and made the hairs on the back of my my neck go up just hearing him just describe that yeah absolutely unbelievable one can't even really imagine it even though he described it so well incredible oh yeah yeah clearly yeah just describing what the earth looks like from from being in space you, you just i don't think you you can you can put yourself in that position and imagine it it's just it's mind-boggling <laughs> yeah yeah we'll have to see if maybe in in years to come then when the price of Going up to space does come down to just £10. Hopefully, you and I can go up there and do an episode from up there. Well, yeah, I'm going to now tell my boy all the, all the tips I've given to, uh, you know, make sure he's curious, make sure he eats well, make sure he never gives up. I'm going to tell him that every night before bed. Fantastic. <laughs> it's um, been brilliant talking with Chris. Hopefully, you can hear how much Liam and I enjoyed it. Hopefully, everyone listening has as well. If you have any questions... <sighs> or anything that you would like us to clarify with Chris, please let us know. Liam and I will be with you next week for another new topic. If you have any questions in the meantime, get in touch with us at Two Guys One Topic on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook. We look forward to speaking with you then. Bye.